This episode of Reality Escape Pod is brought to you by Morty, virtual escape games, and Patreon supporters like you. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guest is author A.J. Jacobs, who is best known for writing books like The Year of Living Biblically and Thanks a Thousand, each based on the extensive lifestyle experiments he puts himself through. His latest book is titled The Puzzler, one man's quest to solve the most baffling puzzles ever, from crosswords to jigsaws to the meaning of life. Welcome, AJ. Thank you, David and PG. Delighted to be here. I hope I know my stuff. We'll see by the end. Uh, you do a little bit of research. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good point. That is a good point. That title is a mouthful. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I wish I could have titles like that for the podcast. It's so descriptive. Yeah, exactly. I want it right out there. And so people know what they're getting. So your books are about the life experiments you run on yourself and always have a fantastic hook. What was the inciting incident that brought about the puzzler? There were a couple. First of all, I've just loved puzzles ever since I was a kid. I had a huge collection of puzzle books, games magazine. I was very into mazes. That was, uh, I would create these intricate pencil mazes that no one ever solved. So that was kind of sad. And then I was sort of into it as an adult. But one of the inciting incidents was about five years ago, I was the answer to a clue in the New York Times crossword puzzle. I was one down. The question was uh, best-selling author A.J. Blank, and it was me, Jacobs. And I thought, as a word nerd, this is the highlight of my life. This is better than my kids being born. This is, oh, my God. And then my brother-in-law pointed out correctly that it was a Saturday New York Times puzzle. And as you might know, Saturday is the hardest puzzle of the week, harder than Sunday. And all the answers are totally obscure. So his point was, this is not a compliment. This is like proof that you're obscure. And so I went on this emotional roller coaster, but it inspired me to get back into crosswords. I think partly because I wanted to see if I would ever appear again in an earlier uh, part of the week. So I began obsessively doing crosswords. And that was sort of a gateway drug to getting back into everything, including escape rooms and all the other genres that I cover in the book. I have to tell you, we're aspiring for a Saturday appearance. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the follow-up to the story, as I write in the book, is actually I told that story on a podcast, and one of the constructors took pity on me and put me in a Tuesday puzzle. So I did actually appear in a Tuesday puzzle, even though I don't really belong there. There you go. You just have to cry and, and beg for it on the podcast, and it'll come <laughs> there to you. There you go. That's the lesson. I can definitely relate to what you're talking about, just about feeling like on such a high about this, because a few years ago, Will Shorts emailed Room Escape Artist and asked a whole bunch of questions about escape rooms. And we told this to our families, especially Lisa's family, who do a lot of New York Times crosswords. And this was like the highlight of anything that we've ever achieved, especially in their eyes. So yeah, I get where you're coming from. That, and did he ever do anything with it or he just was curious about? He had a whole bunch of questions and he ended up not doing anything with it. But just being contacted by the Pope of Puzzles was exciting. Yeah, exactly. At the start of this journey, you were a crossword puzzler were there any other puzzles or puzzle types that you were feeling a connection to at the onset of your research? I like most genres. I was a fan of escape rooms. And as you know, David, you and Lisa were sources for the book and get a little scene. We actually did an escape room together. And I didn't go into that because, I don't know, I ran out of room. But we had a lovely time. And I quoted you, I hope, extensively enough. It was very appreciated. Oh, good. So I had a delightful time with you and Lisa. And yeah, you were my main source on escape rooms. And did I mention in the book your lock picking abilities? No. First of all, thank you for the shout out in the book. That was, it was 
really flattering. My pleasure. Hold on. Did David pick a lock in the room? Please tell me he didn't pick any lock. I, I did not pick a lock, but <laughs> I blew the minds of AJ's children with my trick of being able to look at a key and know which lock it goes to. I'm always aware of what locks are in the room, what the key shapes are, the number of digits that are in any given lock for word locks, what the letter distributions are on each disc. I have this ability to usually just, you know, we see a key or we get a combination and I can point to the lock and say, it's that one. And I'm pretty much always right. Okay. I have seen that done before, but I've never seen, you know, the distribution of letter combinations and word locks. Yeah, some of them. Some of them that have predictable <laughs> distributions. <laughs> yes. It's very impressive, I got to tell you. And we heard about his pat, like he's been doing it since high school. And I think he told stories about, well, one time you were a hero. You broke into an office and saved some woman's laptop. But then there was one where you can cut this out of the podcast. But wasn't there something about a stink bomb in their locker or something? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never told these stories. So, yeah, I've been lockpicking since I was in high school. And most of the time, I've just helped people get into dorm rooms and things that they got locked out of. One time, a coworker locked her laptop in a conference room, and I went and opened up the door pretty quickly. But yeah, the one time I used it, maybe for a little bit of evil, was a friend had pranked me at a job. I was working at a summer camp and she ran art. And I broke into her art shack and um, put four glass stink bombs underneath the bench she always sat at right before the most notoriously bad camp group was going to be there. So when she <laughs> sat down on the bench, she broke all the stink bombs and it smelled like she farted. Wow. And ended up with, with a nickname as a result of it. Wow, David, you evil genius. <laughs> I know. I'm not going to get on your bad side. I am... <laughs> <laughs> uh, we know what you're capable of but it was great you provided so much context for escape rooms which are such a huge part of puzzling that i was very lucky to have found you thank you we, we're going to dig into escape rooms a little bit more in your experience with them in a bit i'm curious before you started this you know researching and really working on this book you were an avid crossword puzzler how did the process of researching and writing this book change your perception or your relationship with the crossword puzzle? Well, it changed my relationship with a lot of the puzzle genres. First of all, I gained so much respect for puzzle makers and uh, constructors Yeah, because it is such an art and there are so many constraints and to make the right puzzle. As part of the journey, I actually did create sort of an online scavenger hunt, puzzle hunt, which I think is okay. It's not a work of genius, but it was fascinating to see what goes into it. I also changed a lot where I became much more of a fan of different genres. For instance, I had never really loved jigsaw puzzles. They seem like, I say in the book, the Larry the Cable Guy of puzzles. So broad, <laughs> no offense to, well, little offense to Larry the Cable. But, you know, they seem very broad and not very subtle or challenging. But I got a lesson. I mean, first of all, I competed in the World Jigsaw Puzzle Championships in Spain, and I got trounced. It was just an embarrassment for the United States, which I represented. So, but but just seeing people at their peak skill and seeing them pivot between strategies to have this sort of meta strategy where you have to choose, am I going to focus on color? Am I going to focus on shape and, and different parts of the puzzle? Texture and depth of field and... Yeah, yeah, all of that. And hues and the blue in the sky is never really just blue. There are shades of blue. So I became much more impressed. And then I also discovered this subgenre of jigsaws that places like Stave Puzzles, the woodcut puzzle maker. They're and beautiful. Yeah, they're gorgeous. And they're super tricky. The borders look nothing like borders. And they'll have 3D pieces. And they'll have pieces in weird shapes like uh fish or horses. And they're funny. I've never laughed out loud at a jigsaw puzzle until I did one of them. But they're just so surprising. The project gave me more respect for every genre of puzzle, including my formerly least favorite of jigsaws. That's fantastic. David and I are big jigsaw puzzlers. You are? <laughs> yeah, it's great. We, you know what it is? We always think of jigsaws because it's usually this old granny art. Some cat's 
playing in a bookstore or something like that. It's like, <laughs> why don't they make cooler pictures for puzzles? And I think it would be a more hip hobby. Well, that has happened. There's the alternative like craft brewery jigsaw puzzles. And, you know, you've got feminist jigsaw puzzles. And I, I think that's happening. Maybe it hasn't taken off fully yet, but it is on the way. There's definitely a lot going on in the space. Personally, I'm a stress jigsaw puzzler. It is my favorite thing to do if I'm having an especially difficult time. If someone I know passes away, I do a jigsaw puzzle. Really? It's very zen. Yeah. I feel like everything else blocks out and your entire perspective is zoomed in on just what's in front of you. No, you're right. It's interesting. I have a whole section on the benefits of different kinds of puzzles. And I think Jigsaw is particularly good at the meditative being present and getting into the zone and the zen. So yeah, I'm a fan as well. The core theme of the puzzler revolves around seeking out the hardest versions of different puzzle types, which speaking as a seasoned puzzler is ambitious given the near infinite depth of puzzle difficulty. What do you feel the hardest version of a puzzle reveals about the puzzle type itself? Well, that's a good question. I'm, as you know and might have discovered in the book, it can be interpreted a ton of different ways. So even just something like Jigsaw, you could say the hardest is the biggest because it takes the most time. And I do have a story of this guy who solved the 54,000-piece puzzle, which is the current largest, and there was one piece missing at the end. And it, <laughs> it's just like the prototypical Jigsaw puzzler's nightmare times 100. But anyway, so it could be that, but it could also be tricky. And I also, as I discussed with you, the most difficult does not mean the best, doesn't mean the most fun. So it was a hook because I thought it would be interesting to explore sort of the Mount Everest of every genre of puzzle. But I also come to the conclusion that in terms of pure joy of puzzling, the hardest is not the best. And you talked about escape rooms that boast that they have a 1% solve rate. That's not impressive. That's terrible. That's frustrating. You want to give people frustration up to a point, and then you want to give them that aha moment and the satisfaction. It is a tricky balance because you want some sadism and masochism because that is part of puzzling, but you don't want it to be so unpleasant that you never get the payoff. I'm right there with you. Did you enjoy any of these hardest puzzles or were they all off in torture land? I actually did. For instance, one that is considered one of the most controversial puzzles ever. And I don't know if you got to that chapter, but it's called the Sleeping Beauty Problem. And it's like the Monty Hall problem, but again, to the nth degree. It is crazy. And there have been more than 100 legitimate philosophy papers in peer-reviewed journals about this problem because no one knows the right answer to this day. And I'm not going to say it because I will botch it, but it has to do with probability and sleeping beauty, falling asleep and waking up and getting a, an amnesia-inducing drug. Can you explain what the sleeping beauty problem is real quickly? Is that easy to do? I can. You'll probably want to cut it out because I have to say it drags. Let's just say this, this is a math puzzle and it's truly worth reading the chapter on this. This is actually the chapter, one of the chapters I was least interested in, but actually was one of the more interesting chapters at the end of the day. Thank you. Yeah, I was fascinated. It was, yeah, incredibly painful in the sense that I never got the right answer because no one knows the right answer. It's still, there's a feud between what are called the thirders and the halfers, the people who say the right answer should be one and three and the ones who say the right answer should be one and two. But just grappling with it and having the experience, you know, when you see optical illusions or magic eye and something snaps into place and you see it, I would have that experience for like 30 seconds grappling with this problem and then I would lose it and then like the next day I would have that experience again and I'd be like oh my god I understand it and then it would be gone so I thought that was fascinating that's how I feel about anything involving like quantum computing if you were looking at the various hardest puzzles you've encountered what do you feel are the hardest of the hardest and what do you feel were the easiest of the hardest 
Well, some of them, like Kryptos, you might have heard of, is this is a sculpture at the CIA, and it is at the headquarters of the CIA. It's about 30 years old, and it's got 2,000 mysterious uh, letters on it. It's a cipher, and some of it has been solved. Like Three of the four parts have been solved. They hint at some sort of treasure buried on the CIA grounds. But the fourth one is, like I think, 300 digits or so, but it has never been solved, not by the CIA. It's right in the backyard of the CIA, and they haven't solved it, which is a little concerning. And the NSA (laughs) hasn't solved it, and thousands of people are online trying to solve it. And that, to me, that could be the hardest because... I'm a little concerned that the sculptor, who is not a professional cryptographer, he worked with an ex-CIA guy, but it is possible that he made enough mistakes that it is impossible to decipher. I hope not, because all these people have spent countless years trying to crack it, and I really want to see it cracked. I like to think that the NSA actually cracked it years ago, (laughs) and they're just using the cipher for communication until Mm. someone solves the sculpture. Wow, I love that idea. That's my little fanfic. That is good fanfic. Yeah, I hope that's true. I mean, the funny part, I interviewed the sculptor who's a great character, Jim Sanborn, and he has gotten so tired because he's been doing it for 30 years. So people email him with the answers dozens of times a day. But he turned it into a little side business where he will answer whether you got the right answer, but only if you pay him $50. So (laughs) he charges $50 and you can send him your answer and he'll say yes or no. So he is one of the highest paid writers on a per word basis in the United (laughs) States. So maybe there is no answer and he was playing the long game after all. Well, that's a big theory. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to make some money off this. That's so funny. We're taking a moment to thank our sponsor, Morty. Morty is a free app for discovering, planning, tracking, and reviewing your escape rooms and other immersive social outings. I believe in it so much that I have a stake in it as an advisor. You know, David, I think one of the best features that Morty has are their ratings and reviews on each game. And it's super easy. You just click on the game that you're interested in playing. If this game has been reviewed by blogs like Room Escape Artist, it'll have links to any review, any escape room blog that mentions the game. So already easy to read about it. Next, it has ratings. So what I like also is that they've split it up into different categories, right? Because we all like escape rooms for different reasons. And so you can read the ratings on puzzles, type of atmosphere, the customer service, and the story, and you can see if there have been positive or negative reviews about each separate aspect, which I find really, really useful. And now they have a new feature where we're getting reviews by players. And what's really cool is that it also lists how many games that reviewer has played. So sometimes, you know, like if you're looking at reviews on TripAdvisor, for example, you're like, "Mm, I'm gonna maybe take these reviews with a grain of salt, but Being able to see the reviewer, how many games they've played and the other games they have played, I think is useful. And just reading the reviews, of course, it's really, really nice. And having it all on one page is just fantastic. You can learn more at mortyapp.com slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D to sign up and get a special badge for our listeners. Link and details in the show notes. You referenced the father of Sudoku, Maki Kanji, and I'll pull a quote from the book here. Kanji may be a fan of gentle Sudokus, but it turns out not everyone wants a spa. Some puzzlers crave the equivalent of numerical CrossFit, which is why you can find Sudokus boasting they are diabolical or murderous. I love the quote. Over the course of your journey, Where did you ultimately land for yourself in terms of personal preference of how gentle versus how diabolical? What's the Goldilocks location for you? Oh, that's a great question. 
Mr. Kaji said he liked it very gentle, you know, a slope. Yeah, he called it a brain spa. That's what he wanted Sudoku to be, a brain spa. But I'm in the middle. I don't want just a gentle walk in the woods, but I don't want like the sheer face of a cliff. I feel that I can struggle for about half an hour. And if I get no aha moments after half an hour, I'm out. I need some sort of, I can go farther. Like I can spend a couple of days on a puzzle, but I need some sort of checkpoints, which you talk about a lot. A good puzzle has these checkpoints. So I need that. And, and I have a whole chapter on Japanese puzzle boxes. I'm a big fan of them. They are so cool. Wait, didn't you propose with a, a puzzle box? I did propose to Lisa with a, it wasn't a Japanese puzzle box. It, it was a one of a kind box that I co-designed with a guy named Kel Snake out of uh, Canada. Cool. And it worked. She did solve it. She solved it and she said, yes, we both won. <laughs> I got into Sudoku after a friend taught me a strategy for it that I have used ever since. And it was a revelation in, in just puzzles in general. And this was back in college or something like that. But before that, when I would do Sudokus, you would mark in the corner what number you think might go in that box. And he's like, no, you're going about it backwards. Like it's all wrong. So what he would do instead is eliminate. So you mark what it can't be. And instead of filling it up with numbers, he did it by means of a dot inside the square. So the entire square, if you look at it as like a grid of three by nine, and so I would mark dots either upper left corner upper mm. top center and that's how i would keep track of what number could not go in there i think that is really interesting you bring that up because i have uh, a lot of the book is about different strategies ways to solve puzzles and not just puzzles but puzzles that are life puzzles problems in life and one of them that I think is super effective is going about eliminating or looking at it backwards. And there's a logic riddle that I talk about in the book that is a good example of this, where it's a, a guy in a 10 by 10 room. It's a prison. Walls are concrete. The floor is dirt. There's a skylight. And he just starts digging, even though he knows he can never dig his way out. It's just too deep. Why is he digging? What's going on there? I honestly thought the answer to that was he was digging a well and the room was going to fill up with water and he was going to swim his way out through the skylight. Oh, that's a good one. I accept that answer. It's not the one <laughs> that they give. I thought I was being really clever with that one, but it's not the answer. <laughs> well, the traditional answer is he's actually, he's building a mountain, a little hill so that he can climb up. But the way to get about that, always try to look at the exact opposite of your first instinct. And I think that's great great what you talk about with Sudoku. I saw it in the top jigsaw puzzlers. They're looking for what is missing. They're not looking for where will this piece go. They'll look at the board and be like, okay, I need one with three nubs and one indentation and then go find it. I use those strategies also, but that's only because I've jigsaw puzzled with Tammy McLeod, one of the best Guinness World Record holder right now for speed jigsaw puzzling. Also a great Sudoku player, and yeah. she was one of my advisors in this book. It was really fun reading the names of the people you were thanking in the back of your book, because it was like, oh, all my friends. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in there, too. You explored a lot of different puzzle subcultures, many of them that I was well aware of, and even if I never had immersed myself in them. But a few of them surprised me. The biggest surprise for me was that there were different maze and labyrinth subcultures. Oh, or yeah. rather, just that mazes and labyrinths are actually completely different concepts. I did not know that. And different subcultures. So can you walk us through this distinction? Because this excited me. Oh, yeah. This was one of my favorite parts, too. I went to the Gathering of the Labyrinth Society, which was in Maryland, and it was right before the pandemic. Which sounds like a secret society that's up to something nefarious. Which <laughs> they would deny. Um, yeah. but they would also, I went there and I, was, I said, oh, this is perfect. I'm writing a book about puzzles. And they're like, oh, no, you're in the wrong place. Labyrinths are not puzzles. Mazes are puzzles, and we don't like mazes. <laughs> You're in the wrong neighborhood, buddy. <laughs> yeah. The maze versus labyrinth is a feud, the jets and the sharks. 
labyrinths, technically, according to them, are not a puzzle because there's only one path. You go and you sort of make a circle and you get to the middle and then you go out. There's no choice points. Mazes, on the other hand, do I go right, left, or straight? And then you eventually find the exit. And labyrinths, to these people, there's been a movement that I didn't know about, but it's apparently substantial size. It is people using labyrinths as sort of a spiritual uh, tool. So they will walk these labyrinths, and some are Christian and see it as a form of prayer. Some are more New Age. Some are psychedelic. But it's this idea that the labyrinth, it's almost a trip that you're taking to discover the mystery of yourself. Whereas mazes, of course, are much more of a puzzle and a game. And I have to say, I prefer the mazes. I, I did walk some labyrinths and, and I found it relaxing. They were meditative and fun, but I do prefer the pain of getting lost in a maze. One guy, I liked his quote, he said, God created labyrinths to heal the psychic toll that mazes inflicted on people. So, <laughs> Very <laughs> contentious. Wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not all of them are so anti-maze, but some are. I have to ask, do the maze people feel the same way about the labyrinth people or do they not even care? No, I think that's the sad thing. When I lived in San Francisco, we hated Los Angeles and Los Angeles didn't give a second thought to San Francisco. It's like a one-way feud and I feel that similar. I mean, the other thing is that haunted houses are labyrinths, apparently, where they take you through, you walk a, a very specific path that's definitely not meditative. For a very particular person, it might be. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then there are the mazes. I went to this maze in Vermont, which alleges to be the hardest maze in America. It was a corn maze and it was hard. This guy was tricky. The average person goes for like four hours and there are emergency exits in the maze because people freak out and they like they need to have a way out. But that was fun. Yeah, that was fun. Well, I did learn things about mazes, like the question of why is it sometimes easier to solve a maze backwards than it is to do it forwards. And it's because those that are easier to solve backwards were made by lazy maze makers who drew it starting at the beginning and ending at the end. So all of the choice points are front loaded at the beginning. So it's easier to get to the end by starting at the end. So that was one of my favorite parts of the book, just every genre. It has a culture, it has eccentric and delightful people, and they all have these secrets, they all have quirks and uh, pet peeves, and it was fun to see. There are at least 20 different genres that I covered in the book. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Virtual Escape Games. Virtual Escape Games specializes in virtual team building adventures for teams anywhere around the globe, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So David, I've been taking my eight-year-old niece to go play escape rooms and she is obsessed with them. It's not always easy to find an escape room that's suitable for kids. And so I was like, we should play an at-home escape room. And I know that Virtual Escape Games just started offering unhosted games. So they usually run games for large corporate groups, but with these non-hosted games, you can play a game with your friends and family for a group of like, I don't know, one to six people, and you can do it on your own time. You don't have to book anything. So if last minute, like my niece is bored and I'm trying to find an activity for her to do, I could be like, hey, why don't we spend an hour playing this game together? And my family loved it. They just had a blast. So I think if you guys are looking for a rainy day activity, something to keep the kids occupied, something to do with friends and family on different coasts or in different cities, I think it's a perfect at-home activity. Hook the kids on puzzles while they're young. For non-hosted games, one to six players, you can get 20% off using the code REA20. And for your team building adventures, you can also knock off 20% with the code TB20. All of this is available for you at virtualescapegames.com. These details are in the show notes. There's a question that we have to ask. 
you've alluded to it already. It was the first question that PG and I had when we cracked open the book. And that's that escape rooms got a mention in the puzzle hunt chapter, but there is no escape room chapter. Where's the escape room chapter? I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. (laughs) Well, I originally had it. The problem was that escape rooms encompass all these different genres because escape rooms have mazes they have jigsaws they have sudoku sometimes chess they've got ciphers so originally i had a whole chapter on escape rooms but it wasn't quite working because it it was a mishmash i had a feeling yeah that was my problem and i only did the only reason I did the escape room scavenger hunts and puzzle hunts in one was because I'm like, all of them are mishmashes. Let me just put them all in one place. And I had gone to the MIT mystery hunt, which I saw you at. Yeah, we bumped into each other going into the, I think that was the, a number of our listeners actually were the constructors of the 2020 MIT mystery hunt. And we were entering into, I think it was the pancake art challenge. I love that challenge. Yeah. You were basically playing Pictionary, but you could only draw with pancake batter onto a hot plate. (laughs) Yeah. So I love that. So anyway, I apologize to you and I apologize to the escape room community. No, nothing to apologize for. The, the structure was very constraining. As you know, from making puzzles, structure is everything. It a hundred percent is. What I am curious about is if we were to outline an escape room chapter that could have been in the book. I'm curious what ideas and questions you were trying to grapple with in that chapter, whether they worked or not. I'm curious where you were trying to make it go. Sure. Well, one of them was how hard it is to create a good game and how much creativity and how many constraints there are. So the current chapter where the escape room section is does talk about, you know, some of the secrets to creating good puzzles. And I use a lot of you as my resource, you know, talk about what was it the lock orgy when you have too many (laughs) locks or number soup when there's too many codes and what you told me which i always think about is a good escape room or a good hunt uses so many different types of puzzles and types of skills so that the whole team can shine you know you want the people who are good at sudoku to have or logic puzzles to have their time to shine and the visual people and also just i remember the room that we did david it was a egyptian themed one and there was like an egyptian staff that a shepherd would have and you had to do a physical challenge with the staff and figure out where the staff and you were like i really like this because it's a different kind of puzzle and it's really using the physicality of the space and I always remembered that so that was sort of the theme a good puzzle hunt a good escape room uses dozens of different skills and different types of puzzles you know I can't disagree <laughs> you said it. I'm just paraphrasing you that's, that's my secret <laughs> let's talk a little bit about mindset while puzzling because in your book you hit on something that lisa and i over the course of the serious isolation months of the pandemic really started to feel while distilling some of the life lessons from your experience you wrote and i'll pull another quote here the idea of trying to turn down the volume on motivated reasoning and anger while turning up the volume on curiosity and the search for solutions For me, this is the crux of puzzling and maybe even life. I don't really have a question so much as I just want to dig more into this concept with you and the mindset and how you landed here. Thank you for reading that part because, yeah, that to me is the real thesis of the book is that the world will be better if everyone sees life as a series of puzzles instead of a series of battles. And I have kids and I was during the quarantine, I was listening to a a child psychologist who said, as a parent, don't get furious, get curious. So when your kid does something wrong, don't flip out. Just be like, why did they do that? What can we do? What's the solution so they won't do that again? And I say, that should not just be for kids and parents. That's life. That's how you have to deal with work, have to deal with the climate crisis. Everything should be about curiosity. I think curiosity 
along with gratitude. Those two are my two favorite virtues. So yeah, it's sort of an ode to curiosity and seeing life as a series of puzzles. There's a great book by Julia Galef called The Scout Mindset, I recommend. She contrasts the scout, like explorer mindset, versus the soldier mindset, which is all about motivated reasoning. And so mine is a puzzle version of that. Be open, be curious, have your hypotheses loosely held. And I actually, in an earlier version of the book, and I apologize to Lisa for this, I had an anecdote about, I had asked you, do you see puzzles in your everyday life? And she said, yeah, yeah, when I throw a dinner party, I see it as a puzzle. What should we make if they've got a vegetarian and a paleo friend, you know, what? and instead of getting frustrated and outraged by the annoyances, to see it as a puzzle, it makes it A, more fun, and B, you're more likely to find a solution because there's lots of studies that say anger is very bad for finding solutions. You're much more likely when you're in a lighter, more playful mood. Because anger gives you tunnel vision. I just think there's too much anger in the world, right? There's a lot to be angry about, but it's counterproductive to finding solutions. So try to tamp down the anger, even if it's something that's unjust, and instead go into puzzle mode. Well, and puzzles also teach you that your expected solution is usually not the correct one. And so I think that really helps with being more open-minded about solutions in general. I love that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I once interviewed Tina Fey, and she said one of her rules for her comedy writers is first thought, worst thought. Never go with your first thought because it's going to be too obvious. I don't know if that's always true. Sometimes the first thought is a great thought, but often it's not. So I agree. Looking for a more creative solution is often the way to go. On the subject of solutions, the Puzzler has many puzzles in it created by Greg Pliska, and it also includes a deeper $10,000 cash prize puzzle if you can solve the bigger one. Where did putting puzzles into the book emerge over the course of writing the book? Was it always part of the plan or did this become part of the plan? I always knew I wanted to include puzzles in the book because I thought this will be fun. And originally it was just going to be historical puzzles, which I do have like over a hundred historical puzzles in the book, like the first crossword puzzle ever, Lewis Carroll mazes and, and old logic problems. Originally, as I say, I was going to make the puzzles myself. And then I realized, you know, I am not qualified, <laughs> you know, maybe if I had 10 years of training. So I had a mutual friend, Greg Pliska, who is fantastic, and he's an MIT. He's on C-Tech Astronomy, which has won several times. That's one of the most dominant teams in the modern MIT mystery hunt. Yes, I was on their team, and they purposely did not want to win because the team that wins has to make the hunt. So they are very good at tanking as yeah. well. So he created these amazing puzzles that are very hard. Don't do them alone. They're really challenging. And then the contest idea came about because one of my my favorite books growing up was Masquerade. And you mm -hmm. two are probably too young for that. I got a copy. You do? Oh, yeah. Really? But not from when it came out. You no, know? no, no, no. I was like 10 when it came out. And this, if you don't know, is a British book with gorgeous bizarre illustrations of rabbits dancing and and playing cards come to life and it is in those illustrations were clues to a buried treasure a golden rabbit somewhere in england and i just love that idea that you could have this book that was not just a great book but also it was a uh, a treasure hunt and that spawned a whole genre of treasure hunt books as you might know armchair treasure hunts mm -hmm. uh, secret and various others so i'm like all right i'm not gonna bury anything because he actually got in a little trouble because people were like digging up gardens all over england <laughs> and it was like some legal problems so mine is not buried but it is in the book there is a secret code that if you put it on the website, that will open up to a, a series of puzzles, also written by Greg Pliska and some others. The first to solve those puzzles wins the $10,000 prize. Can we get any hints for how to start? Oh, sure. There's no <laughs> legal problems with that at all. <laughs> no. Does, does it involve having to solve all of the puzzles first in the book? 
No, in fact, and I hope you buy the book. I hope people buy the book because I think it's entertaining, but you don't I'll be buying have to. Oh, thank I read you. it. I'll buy it anyway. I absolutely. I know. I'm like, I want a signed copy. It, the book, the book is you fantastic. And the fact that there's puzzles that you can play in there also, it's awesome. Like it definitely makes me want a paper version. And I haven't bought an actual paper book in ages. The only paper books I ever buy are puzzle books. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it does feel that it's better in paper when I have it. It's better than the PDF somehow. But thank you for buying it. But the puzzle itself, the secret code is embedded in the introduction to the book, which is also available online. You can go to my website or the puzzlerbook.com website, and that is where the secret code is hidden. But then that secret code will open up like a whole other amazing puzzle hunt written by a lot of these are C-Tech astronomy players. So it has an MIT mystery hunt feel to it. Which you will have to solve to win. Those, if you want to get your 10,000, you do. You can bring friends along because, yeah, they're not easy. Yeah, I bet. Hey, folks. I'd like to take a moment to talk to you about something that I've been working on with a bunch of people from the team over here for years. We've been wanting to host Recon, the Reality Escape convention in person in Boston for a very long time. And circumstances have halted that effort, but not this year, we're doing it. August 21st and 22nd of 2022 in Boston, Recon is happening. We are blending escape room conference with the tours we've been producing for years to produce a proper escape room convention. You'll meet people, you'll play games, you'll hear wonderful talks. It's going to be a great time, and I truly hope that you come and join us. Tickets for Recon are available now. You can learn more at realityescapecon.com. Details in the show notes. Now that you've gone through this journey of puzzle and self-exploration and the book is finished, what types of puzzles do you see yourself regularly engaging with in the future? That's a great question. My first love is always crossword and the spelling bee is an addiction and Wordle. I'm a big fan. I think I'm part of the Wordle cult. You got the Wordle bug too? I got the Wordle bug. But I've also, as I said, jigsaws. I'm a convert. I never thought I would be. Cryptics. I like American cryptics. I don't want to sound xenophobic because um, <laughs> <laughs> I love the Brits. I love lots of stuff they do, Monty Python, but their cryptics are way too frustrating for me and obscure. But American cryptics seem to be a little more doable. What's the difference between American cryptics and British cryptic? It's just a level of difficulty. The British cryptics are, first of all, the vocabulary. It's like things you've never heard. Maybe people in Britain, the Scottish word for dagger, things like that. But then also the puns and anagrams and homophones and all that are just on another level of insanity. Cryptics are also a lot more popular in the UK than they are in the US. If you walk into like an airport, in London and go to like a newsstand, you'll find a book of cryptics next to a book of crosswords and Sudoku. Whereas if you go to a newsstand in the US, you'll only find Sudoku and crossword. True. Although I will say, I feel cryptics are on the upswing in America. I think the New too. Yorker, Yeah. Lots of places are starting them. The New Yorker, um, there's a one called the browser that has them. But yeah, more and more places seem to be publishing them. They're tough. They are tough. But yeah, one of my strange travel habits is I walk into newsstands and airports when I'm traveling and see what books are on sale in the puzzle section. What have you found besides the cryptic one? For the most part, and I only started doing this about a year before the pandemic, so I haven't traveled much since this dawned on me. But the only place that stood out to me were the cryptic books in the UK. As part of this, I actually, I went to Japan with my family before, and it wasn't technically part of the book, but we did go to the birthplace of the Japanese puzzle boxes. And I do remember walking into Japanese newsstands and just the number of logic puzzles, the variety that they've come up with, hundreds of them. It's insane. 
You know, Sudoku is just the beginning. So I loved exploring that. And also the tension between Sudoku and Ken Ken. I don't want to overstate it, but there is a little bit of tension between <laughs> Ken Ken solvers and, and Sudoku solvers. Our podcast is about immersive gaming, and your life seems to be about immersing yourself in experiments. You pick a subject and you dive down about as deep as you possibly can, whether you're talking about living the Bible as literally as you can for a year or literally thanking everybody involved in the creation of your cup of coffee. What do you get out of immersing yourself so deeply in a given topic, and how much of that stays with you when you've moved on to the next one? I love that question. I hadn't made the connection between immersive entertainment and what I do. I should have, but thank you for bringing it to light. Yeah, I love, some people call it method writing, or but the idea of trying to see the world from a new point of view, I think it's wonderful and it's educational and keeps life interesting. And I think it helps with compassion. I think being able to take on a different life than your own helps you literally walk in someone else's shoes. I do believe for every project I've immersed myself in, there are elements that stay with me. Like you had referenced, probably my best-selling book so far was The Year of Living Biblically, where I tried to follow all the rules of the Bible. So I had a crazy beard and I followed the Ten Commandments and I did stone adulterers, but I used very small stones <laughs> like pebbles. Um, I shaved my beard and I put away the pebbles after that. But there were many things that stayed with me. You know, the biblical living has a lot to say about gratitude. Also, the community in biblical times, it was all about the community, not the individual. And, you know, I live in America. I am an individualist, but I think we've gone too far towards the obsession with individuality. And we have to think of our responsibility to the community. I always try to take away some life lessons that stay with me forever, but get rid of the crazy ones like the stoning adulterers. <laughs> <laughs> what comes next for you? That is a good question. I have, if you have any ideas, I'm ready. I'm ready. I've got, uh, I've got some half-baked or quarter-baked ideas, but I haven't settled on anything yet. This one was, was going to be tough because this is a true passion of mine. This is not something that I just said, oh, this could be a successful commercial enterprise. I have loved puzzles all my life, so it's kind of sad whatever I choose next. I hope that I love it as much as I love puzzles. How long did it take you to research? Because you, you talk about traveling to a lot of places when researching for this book. So how long did all of that take you? Too long. Yeah. My <laughs> publisher's like, where is it? It probably would have been out a few months ago, if not for COVID. That slowed things down. But at the same time, COVID was a golden age for puzzles. People discovered the joy of puzzles during COVID. They were sold out on Amazon. Jigsaws, for sure. I have a huge collection of jigsaw puzzles, and my friends sent me all these SOSs. Like, <laughs> you know, like, I'm sitting on a veritable gold mine <laughs> here at home. I saw a quote in the Times that said, yeah, this guy said, we're on war footing. We're on war footings, too. We've got to churn them out. So, yeah, it was crazy. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, Twitter is AJ Jacobs and my website is ajjacobs.com. And yeah, I would love to hear from you. And, and actually, Greg Pliska, who did the puzzles, said, we want you to have a good time solving these puzzles. So we will try to respond to queries. So if you are stuck, not the contest, we're not helping you with the contest because then we'd get sued. But we will help you with the 20 or so puzzles that Greg created or some of the historical puzzles. And you won't even charge 50 bucks for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Now that you bring that up. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining us, AJ. And we really, truly appreciate it. And if you want to hear more, stick around for the Patreon bonus episode. The book is The Puzzler. It is out now. You should buy it. It's fantastic. Thank you, David. And thank you, Lisa, who maybe is listening. And thank you, PG. And once again, thank you for being such an amazing part of the book and for all your wisdom throughout it. Speaking for both Lisa and myself, it was our pleasure. It was such a delight to meet you and your family and talk about puzzles in life. Ah, good. Well, I had the same experience. The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Lisa Spira, edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media, and brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com. 
your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. I'd like to take a minute to talk to y'all from the heart. PG and I put a lot into making all of these episodes, as do the team that is off microphone. My wife, Lisa, Steve, our editor, put a ton into producing this podcast. All of this is made possible because of the support from our Patreon community. That financial support allows us to invest in the production value of what we're making and allows us to inch our way towards making this into a proper career. It's hard to monetize content these days, and our Patreon community really does allow us to do that. And we're really trying to grow. So we put out extra bonus episodes for our patrons. We have a spoilers club for higher level backers. We've got a Discord chat, and we're always adding new things to the mix for our patrons. So if you love what we're doing, please consider supporting us. It means more than you could ever imagine and you'll get a whole bunch of extra content too. Thank you again to all our patrons. If you aren't one, I hope you become one. Speaking of our Patreon supporters, I want to take a moment to thank some of our highest level backers. This podcast would not exist without your support. Thank you so much to Breakout Games, Derek Tam, Jonathan Driscoll, Byron Delmonico, Paula Swan, Rex Miller, and Scott Olson. Thank you so much for your support. Well, hopefully the book is filled with funny and embarrassing and or inspiring <laughs> stories. I'm just looking at the table of contents. I have a section on chess puzzles, which I didn't realize some people call them chess problems, but they are a huge subculture separate and apart from chess. So they have their own champions and their own rock stars and their own lingo. And actually, I was able to interview Gary Kasparov, who loves chess problems, but he's not the best in the world. He's not the best at them. And I guess there were two funny moments in my interaction with him. He came over to my apartment and I was all nervous. So I had set everything up. I had the chess set out and it was set up in a problem, actually. And he sat down and he said, this is a very cheap chess set. And I was like, oh, I was like, well, and it was. It was like a plastic one I had gotten off Amazon for like $9. And I was like, oh, I was freaking out. I was like, I can try to find a better one. We did have one that my son bought that uh, was like a Nintendo theme. So like Mario was the king. But he's like, no, no, it's okay. I grew up in the Soviet Union. I'm used to cheap chess sets. So he, he gave me an out. He gave me an out. But the other thing we talked about was how AI and uh, machine learning has changed chess and changed puzzles in general but he said there is a chess problem usually these problems are made in two or made in three meaning you've got a bunch of pieces on the board and you have to figure out how white can mate black in two moves or three moves but there's one that's i believe it's 547 moves and there's no human on earth who can do it but a machine and ai can do it and and Gary himself said, I watched them solve it. And for the first 400 moves, I had no idea what was going on. And only in like the last 50 moves could I understand what this AI was up to. And I just thought that was so fascinating. And I said, doesn't that make you nervous? Because there are people who are very concerned about AI and the misalignment problem, they call it, where AI might take over <laughs> if we don't treat it properly. And he said, no. He said, I was the first knowledge worker to be put out of a job by AI, and I'm not worried, so you shouldn't be. Because if you remember, he was famously beaten by Big Blue in chess, and it was like, oh my God, the best chess player, finally a robot beat him. So he says there's still a place for humans, and he's much smarter than me, so that made me feel better. 